the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, we answer the question, is space the sea without a shore? And do you need a poetic license to navigate through it in a literal spaceship? Meanwhile below, the planetary landscape spackled with Bain Author Award nominations. Plus part five of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Art Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talked to David Drake about his new Republic of Cinnabar Navy series entry, The Sea Without a Shore, and Bain publisher Tony Weisskopf joins in the discussion as well. And we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. That's coming up, but first the news. Boy, have we got news this time. It's awards season, and Bain Books and Bain Authors are finalists all over the place. First of all, we have Charles E. Gannon, who is a Nebula finalist for his science fiction novel Fire with Fire. Plus, Chuck has won the prestigious Compton Crook Award for first novel. And there's more. A finalist for Best Novel Hugo Award this year, given out at the World Science Fiction Convention, is the third entry in Larry Correa's Grimnor Chronicle series, that book is called Warbound. Now, many of you know that we are currently serializing the first novel in that series, Hard Magic, here on the podcast. Also a Hugo finalist in two categories is New Bane author Brad Torgerson. He's up for Best Novelette and Best Novella for his stories, The Exchange Officers, and The Chaplain's Legacy. The Chaplain's Legacy won the AnLab Reader's Choice Award for 2013, that is, the readers of Analog Science Fiction magazine voted that story as the best story to appear all last year. Brad's first novel will be coming out from Bain in October. That is, The Chaplain's War. It's a really excellent science fiction novel, and we'll be talking a lot more about it soon. Finally, Bain publisher and my boss, Tony Weisskopf, is a Hugo finalist in the editor long-form category which seems befitting since she is the editor of two Hugo-nominated fiction writers this year. So congratulations to all our nominees from Bain and onward and upward with telling the best science fiction and fantasy stories in the galaxy. I want to welcome David Drake to the podcast. Hello, Dave. Hi, Tony, and hi, Tony, because I gather that Tony Prime, my beloved publisher, is there also. I am. Hello, world. That's right. Uh, Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf is also with us today. My boss. More about Dave. David Drake is an er author here at Bain. He's the creator of numerous novels and series, including the best-selling Hammer Slammers military science fiction series, and more recently, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series. He's also the co-author of a host of series, ranging from the Belisarius novels with Eric Flint to the Citizen series with John Lambshead. We are calling it the Citizen series, aren't we, Dave? Well, we, we have been for the past couple of years, but hey, I'm, I'm flexible. Uh, 
you know, we could call it the monarchy series or the brutal dictator series. It, these wouldn't be accurate, but what the heck? And I'm just going to go ahead and veto the brutal dictator series right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> He's also the author, Dave is, of uh, the general series uh, with uh, S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and for the last couple of books, yours truly, Tony Daniel. Uh, those last two would be The Heretic and The Savior. Dave is also the author of two high fantasy series, including the Lord of the Isles series, and more recently the Book of the Book, the Books of the Elements series, with latest entry Monsters of the Earth. He's also a prolific short story writer, and much of his early work is collected in Night and Demons, a collection that is recently out from Bain. Now out in hardcover, and what we want to talk about today, and at booksellers everywhere, is the 10th entry in the RCN Military Science Fiction series. It's called The Sea Without a Shore. This is a series featuring adventurous and tactically brilliant Captain Daniel Leary and his friend and comrade in arms, data cruncher, librarian, and spy, Adele Mundy. Uh, as for Dave Drake, also, David is a graduate of Duke Law School. He's a Vietnam vet, and he also reads Latin for pleasure. <laughs> Dave, you describe the uh, RCN series as being partly inspired by Patrick O'Brien's uh, The Aubrey Maturin Master and Commander Sea Adventures. Can you tell us a bit about the genesis of the whole series? Well, uh, yeah, it, I wouldn't say partly. It was 100 <laughs> You know, that was entirely the thing. Um, Jim Bain, my friend, my publisher, uh, Tony's predecessor in office, uh, was a huge fan of Patrick O'Brien's series and prodded me for years to read them, and finally I did read them, and, you know, they were just as good as Jim thought they were. Um that isn't always the case with things Jim was really enthusiastic about, but he was right about that, and he was right about Buffy. Uh, to, and that's not exactly the, uh, the sublime and the ridiculous, but uh, there is a spread there. Um, and, and basically, they're Napoleonic uh, naval uh, action series. They were conceived as a knockoff of the Hornblower series, which Jim also loved, and, and I. Uh, but they were really too good for that market, and they languished in this country for quite a while, and then took off when they began to be marketed to uh, oh, the sort of people who would read Patrick O'Brien's other books. And I I read them, and I was reading them with great enthusiasm, and I phoned Jim and said, hey, uh, you know, there, there have been lots of Horatio Hornblower in space uh, series out, and some good and, and some less good, but lots of them. Uh, but I don't know of there ever being a an Aubrey Matterin in space series. And Jim said, well, I can't think of one either. And I said, well, gosh, why don't I see what I can do? And he thought that was a great idea. And uh, I did the first 
sort of trial run because what's different about these is it's two characters rather than yeah. one and and that's really quite significant because yeah. they play off each other it's not just a matter that they both advance the plot but you know it's really the interaction between the characters that's uh, a lot of the interest of the books and uh, I, I did a novella for um, Dave Weber's his first Honor Harrington um, tribute anthology I guess you'd call it uh, Worlds of Honor uh, using uh, a split of characters much like those of the Aubrey Matterin series. And that worked pretty well, but I immediately realized that although I took 26,000 words on that piece, uh, it really should have been longer uh, to really to make it work right. So, um, even clones of the same characters, but the same sort of split of uh, interests and backgrounds and uh, everything, talents, of, uh, you know, the, the thing I did different from Patrick O'Brien was uh, one of my characters is male <laughs> and the other is female. Uh, but, <laughs> and I yeah. kept getting um, questions early on that, well, wh when are Leary and Mundy going to get together? And, you know, well, when is Aubrey going to start screwing Matterin? Uh, and the answer is never. That, that's, that's not neither character. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it, I mean, <laughs> don't you have, or... Uh, some readers to avoid that. Uh, kind of odd, you know. It just that never occurred to me to as a question, but it was one that got asked a lot, simply because they were two people of opposite sexes. So, well, obviously they have to be sexually involved. No, they don't. I mean, don't you have any friends of the other sex? And in the case of some of the people who were asking the questions, I suppose the answer was no, actually they don't, but but it is possible. Well, tell us, um, speaking of the characters, I think these books really revolve around the characters more than anything. I mean, the adventures, the exploding spaceships, and the firefights are great, um, but the books wouldn't be what they are without Leary and Mundy. Uh, t tell us maybe about who those characters are, da maybe uh, Daniel first. Um, well, they're both nobles, um, which in in one case a a younger sibling, uh, in the other case uh, one of a decayed house and the last remnant. Uh, so neither of them are rich, uh, but they're well born, and that was absolutely normal for both the army and the, uh, the Royal Navy in the 18th century. Um, and for that matter, it's worth noting that the, uh, in the royal family today, uh, the younger son is indeed a combat soldier 
in Afghanistan. Um, you know, this is this is simply normal for science of nobility, uh, minor science. <laughs> and uh, he's smart. He's got a lot of talent. Uh, he's a non-standard sort of fellow. He drinks a fair amount, and he... It's not that he has no standards. He has very high standards in the women he's seen with. They have to be very pretty and very young, and it helps if they're not very bright. But he's ended up with a pretty bright woman at this point in the series, in Miranda. Uh, yes, and that's, uh, you know, he is older. Um, he is settling down to a degree. Um, he's got a girlfriend who is a serious fiancé, uh, who is a very smart person. And uh, it's an interesting relationship, which I hope to go into a little more as I continue to go into a little more as the series progresses. Um, I think there's even a, a comment in one of the, the more recent books in the series. I don't think it's this one. I think it may be the one before that Daniel, after the, the end of the heroics, is sitting surrounded by three stunningly beautiful bubbleheads and thinking, gosh, you know, a few years ago I would have thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, <laughs> with the implication that actually he doesn't feel that way anymore, but, you know, he's, he's still a young man uh, in a very dangerous business. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing about heroes. I'm not writing about saints. And I wouldn't be interested in writing about saints. And I, I certainly wouldn't imply that Daniel is a good role model for most purposes. He, he, he's also the, the kind of person who appears to the casual observer to be very simple, but who is in fact not, who, who is in fact a deep thinker for what it is that he does. <laughs> uh, he, he plays the bluff space captain very well. And he's known a lot of bluff space captains. And uh, no, that that isn't actually him. Um, He's he's a good character. I mean, he's he's a nice character. He you know, he doesn't have the kind of rough edges that my characters usually have have had. He's a pleasure to write. He'd be a a good friend. What about Adele? Um, <laughs> now the book we're in we're in uh, in the sea without a shore. We're in Adele's point of view. A great. Uh, through most of the book, a lot of the book, she comes across as supremely competent and somebody who understands her own uh, limitations and abilities. Yeah. She's also pretty Absolutely. bleak, though, in her outlook, and, and perhaps more like some 
great characters we've seen in the past. Well, uh, quite a lot like the author, to be perfectly honest. I I didn't come up with that uh, just out of the air, you know. Uh, she's a lot more like me than Daniel is. And um, the, the other thing about her is that uh, she's lost everything, you know, basically. And uh, she's aware of that, and she's intellectually very sharp. Uh, but nothing actually lasts, and she knows that. Uh, everyone dies everything dies, and the universe ends, uh, which doesn't keep her from doing her best for the people close to her, uh, knowing that they will do the same for her. And uh, again, it's uh, it's a mindset. It's, um, it's a lot closer to the one I came back from Nam with, than is normally put in fiction, I think. Um, <laughs> I've become a much nicer, calmer person, and to a degree, so has Adele. But, but she is also the one you send when the outcome of the meeting may be that one party is going to kill everyone else in the room. And that she is the party you send for your side. And you know, that's, that is a real sort of... It's the way I read Doc Holliday quite a lot, as a matter of fact. Not actually a, you know, a bad man in the normal sense, but... Uh, if not a sociopath, then um, able to act like one when needed. Uh, the thing to remember about the gunfight at the OK Corral is that he's the one who came carrying a shotgun. There's no question in his mind how this was going to be. And yeah, he was carrying a Colt, but it was a Colt 1898 shotgun. You know, just <laughs> viewpoint, viewpoint. I, I, I do find it interesting that so many librarians identify with Adele. <laughs> it's a little scary, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've known a lot of librarians. Now, I, know, I only rose the book page, but um, she's, she's a pretty real character. <laughs> <laughs> I love Adele. Adele is one of my favorites of yours. Well, as I say, this is Adele is the character who is most if a character in the book says something that sounds like my friends might have heard me speak, that character will probably be Adele, which may reasonably bother some of you. <laughs> well, maybe not you two because you've heard me. not us, no. <laughs> But Adele also spends a lot of time holding things in that <laughs> had best better not be said because they would uh, they would fall on idiot ears anyway. Yeah, it wouldn't do any good. Can you 
tell us a little bit about the setup. What is the task? In fact, it's Daniel's sister that's, that sets the task for her, that gives her the, her initial problem for the, for the book. Yeah. Yeah, this, this was kind of a, a fun situation. You've, uh, you've got a situation where the two great powers of the world, of the universe, uh, are at peace. And it's, it would be horrible for everybody if the war broke out again because they were, they're at peace because they were both exhausted. And, uh, you know, if it had gone on much longer, everything would have collapsed. And if it breaks out again, everything will collapse. And, uh, the problem is that you have lots and lots of points of contact and individual you know remember the the original 14th century i believe uh english invasion of ireland came because one of the irish kings invited one of the english barons over uh to to help him in a squabble with other Irish kings. And it's that sort of thing that is so dangerous. Because if you've got people on both sides who and we're we're not talking about the leaders. We're talking about low end people or middle ranking people. Uh you know how Russia conquered the Asiatic Russia? Uh, individual generals with commands in the, you know, the the eastern region against orders began conquering the next tribe. And that's how Russia moved into Chechnya and various other places that have been a huge, huge problem for them ever since. And they didn't do it because it was national policy. National policy was to stay out. But the individual generals got involved because if they succeeded, they would be promoted because they had to be promoted. They were heroes. And if they failed, well, and, and they tended not to fail because it was a, a more or less developed country uh, fighting less developed tribesmen. Um so the, the empire kept advancing until basically they came in contact with the Japanese who were advancing in the other direction. And then you had a war between two reasonably major powers. And nobody wanted it. I mean, nobody who mattered wanted it. But the individuals on the ground for their own individual, very small purposes thought there was something to be gained by this. And so both powers got drawn into it. And it was a disaster for everybody, really. Um, the same thing happened after the Peloponnesian War. Or, sorry, um after the Persian Wars in the Greek world in the 5th century. You had Athens and Sparta, and they were at peace. They had been allies against Persia. But 
individuals and the there was a revolt in Egypt against the Persians and the revolting Egyptians tried to get Greek help and the Athenians sent help and the Spartans didn't but it, then it turned out to be a disaster for Athens and that made the Athenians really peeved and there was some reason to believe that the Spartans had if not exactly been helping the Persians they certainly hadn't been hurting <laughs> the Persians while the uh, Athenians were getting their tits in the ringer so to speak and gosh can you say that on the air <laughs> it's the well, internet you can say anything uh, <laughs> You had a series of provocations, because now both sides were quite peeved with the other, and there would be a series of tit-for-tat provocations, and you wound up with the Peloponnesian Wars, which lasted for 30 years and destroyed Athens, um, effectively exhausted Sparta, and then Sparta completely collapsed uh, against Thebes, and then everything went completely to hell, and everyone was fighting. And this only ended when the Romans took the area over. Uh, the Romans did not destroy Greece. The Greeks destroyed Greece. And it was this sort of little minor stuff that got out of hand. So this is really a, a very fertile uh, subject for adventure fiction. So you've got people, and it's not just that Adele has been tasked with a job. Uh, Daniel has been tasked with a different job. And the government of Cinnabar has its own feelings about it. And there are people on the other side, on the Alliance side, who definitely have their own feelings. But the people on the ground, uh, the the local colonials, who are fighting one another. Uh, that is, you have factions, but within the factions, there's quite a lot of fighting going on also, because everybody is most hostile to the people closest to them. And that, this is the way that a situation like this goes. When you take off the, the overall control, then the little pieces don't separate. They fly apart. And this, you know, a lot of, lot of room for action, but there's also a lot of room for really good intrigue and politics. I had fun. Well, um, and you mentioned Daniel's task. Adele is, is tasked by uh, Daniel's sister 
to prevent the two major powers from getting into a, a war, but it's it's actually to look out for her own financial interest. That is uh, Daniel's sister, I believe. Is that that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, but she she's actually hired to look out for the Leary family interests. And no, no one wants a war to break out. But no, that that is not the prime purpose that Adele is there. Uh, a war breaking out to no one's advantage, but a huge scandal affecting the Leary family uh, is the primary concern. And, you know, Adele is willing to try to do both. But it's quite clear, and, and she's quite clear, it may not be possible to do both. So there's the question of, okay, who who is the first? If push comes to shove and one of two groups has to be thrown to the wolves, which group gets thrown to the wolves? Yeah, it's fun. And let me point out, both of these characters, and indeed most of the characters in in all my fiction, they're honorable. But it isn't that simple. If if you do not believe there are shades of gray, then you're religious nut, and you shouldn't be running anything. And if you doubt that, take a look at Iran. And my characters know there are shades of gray. It's just a matter of um, where they draw the line. And, you know, who's more important? Your family, your friends, your nation? These are not easy questions. And I don't have any easy answers for people either. I, my stuff has become a great deal less bleak since I got a lot off my shoulders with Redliners back in 97. Well, speaking of religious nuts, um, Daniel's task, that is, um, Daniel Leary's task, is to... Um, is to do something with Adele's boss's son, Ricard Cleveland, and he's he's joined a cult on the the planet that they're going to is uh, Corsera. Is that how he? Uh, Corsaira. Yeah. Corsaira. He's joined a cult, the Transformationist, and Daniel is. Uh, what is Daniel's task in this? Uh, they're not really they're not working for the RCN in the book at this point. They're on half pay, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely not. No, he's uh he's basically there to shepherd the boy uh who thinks he can find a treasure. Uh their task isn't precisely to find the treasure for him because they don't believe there is one. Uh but they're they're there to keep Rickard from being killed. It's that simple. Um, the, uh, the stepfather of the boy doesn't want him killed, uh, mostly because it would bother his wife a great deal. Uh, actually, the stepfather would be fine if uh, the kid disappeared and never came back, but having him 
you know, brutally murdered is a different matter. Um, so, so they're they're there as minders, and uh, neither Daniel nor Adele have any particular religious leanings. And if they did, uh, it wouldn't be some wacko cult which believes in the goodness of men and uh, the, the perfectibility of humans. Um, is that the transformist? It turns out to be actually, yeah, it, it's a lot less simple than it actually starts out seeming. But my characters are not spiritual characters, particularly Adele. Although... They are keeping someone from being killed because he doesn't have good sense, that, that's an understandable task, and that's the one they're, they're playing with. Successfully, I might add, to, you know, right up through the climax. Well, Adele does, and Daniel, they, uh, they step out on the hole when they're in the, uh, the Fashion and Light uh, tunnel, the Matrix, and Adele has sort of a, I mean, she wouldn't describe it as a mystical experience. In fact, she goes out of her way not to. But she does have a an experience of some sort of meaning out there in the stars. Or maybe not. Tell me. Yeah. But it isn't the one that, that Daniel has, and it certainly isn't the one that the transformationists have. An, an ability to say, I don't know. Yeah. You know, there may be something out there, but I don't know. Uh as opposed to using agnostic as uh, really, uh, if I had the guts, I'd say atheist. But you know, to be an atheist, you have to have faith. You have to have faith that there is no truth. But there's stuff out there in the universe that she doesn't understand, and she does know that. And I think the sense of wonder is present in this universe. Certainly, Leary finds it when he's looking for his biological curiosities, and Adele also encounters things that are wonderful to her. Uh, yes, and I, I very deliberately set this in a a universe in which there's a great deal of stuff that isn't known. Uh, there is lots of evidence scattered through um, of a space-traveling civilization uh, about 40,000 years ago, and it doesn't appear to have been human. But, and, and I've had people say, well, why, why don't you make that the focus of the book? No. No, these, these are very practical people doing very practical tasks. And they note the oddities, and they're certainly aware of the oddities, but uh, no, that's not what their focus is. They're not going to dig up the spaceship that may be buried under several miles of ice on one of the worlds they stop at, uh, because they've got something else on their plate right now, saving the world. Uh, uh, but it's there. Uh, this, I'm trying to create a universe like the real universe in that it's 
a very strange place. And by that, I don't mean we learn strange things. I mean, there are things out there we'll never learn. And that, you better get used to it because that is the real world. So, and that's fun. I mean, I, I really like doing those little bits uh, just to remind people that there is a backstory and it goes back tens of thousands of years. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> so there. Yeah. Well, speaking of meaning and, uh, and evocation of wonder, uh, these, the titles of these books, they're really poetic. And I don't, I don't know if I've seen a series that has such beautiful titles as, as these. Um, where do you come up with them? I read a lot of 19th century, mostly, poetry. Uh, the Sea Without a Shore is actually early 20th century. It's uh, Alfred Noyes. Uh, Noyes is best known for the highwayman. Uh, the, the barrel organ is very well worth reading. And it's he's describing a night, and this organ is playing on a corner, and the music is going out just this little tinkling tune, but it's going out for blocks and blocks and blocks. And it, it has no real bounds. And it's not what the music itself is, but it's what the tune reminds the listener of. Their own past, their own youth, their, when they were young and hopeful, or perhaps young and in love, or, or perhaps something less good. Uh, and and that's the thing that a good book does. It doesn't teach a person, it doesn't teach the reader about emotions, but it reminds the reader of the emotions they had when that happened to them. And... I, I found that a, a very effective poem, and I, I used it. Uh, I used that line. Um, I've used Tennyson. I've used Kipling. Uh, A.E. Hausman. Uh, Hausman gets used a lot. Uh, you know, Queen of Air and Darkness. That, uh, how many times has that title been used? I can think um, of at least four off the top of my head. I <laughs> and I, I used Blake's The Tiger. Uh, I didn't use the usual bit from the tiger. Um, you know, it good good poetry has effective resonances, and I'm perfectly happy to steal these resonances for myself and. I um it it's just everything a, a writer can use everything it's just a matter of finding the place to retail it <laughs> to you know to to show it to the readers mm-hmm. and I steal from the best and there's a lot of really good people out there and I will plunder them at will, and I do. Speaking of the practical nature of our characters, 
I'm trying to picture the um, Adele's personal data unit. It's a great tool. It has all kind of functions, and it, it's like her. It's like a uh, a wonderful MacGuffin as well because it allows you to do so many things with the story. How do you picture this thing? I kind of picture it as an iPad tablet that's disembodied in front of her, something like that. Is that close? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, little yeah, iPad maybe, Kindle maybe. Uh, not big. Uh, mostly. You know, information packs very small, but mostly what she's doing with it is um, linking into existing databases wherever she is. And it's setting up the pathways that is where her skill comes in. Now, sorting data is another skill which she has, but that, that is actually secondary. It's putting yourself in a position to get data uh, from wherever you are. And uh, that that's simply an access point, um, a darned useful one. I have had fun and I've had academics tell me I've gotten it exactly right. When something's happening in front of her, and the only way she can really focus on it is to imagine it that she's watching it through an electronic interface. You know, her her first thought is to go to her data unit, not go to the reality. If you want to know what someone's background is, you check the data unit. You don't ask them, even though they're sitting in front of you, and will tell you. And that's uh, as someone who has difficulty um, interacting with other human beings. Uh, not, you know, she's not unable to do that. I'm not unable to do that. But I, I like to get my information from books. I don't spend a lot of time, well, actually, that's not true. I spend an enormous amount of time on the phone but they're not outgoing calls any more than this is, really. <laughs> um, you know, I, I like data. I like to read memoirs. In, in some ways, they're handier than talking to a person. Although, if you get somebody talking, and you don't have to ask questions, better if you don't, you can listen to them and and learn stuff that isn't going to be written down. Um, I was trained as an interrogator by the Army. And most of what an interrogator does is just listen and correlate data. And you can learn an enormous amount that way. But it's the correlations. It's not raw data. It's how the raw data intersects with other bits of raw data and, you know, puts a different light on things. And I, I take great pleasure in that, and so, by golly, does Adele. Daniel's more direct person. That is her great uh, strength is the ability to, to soak in and manipulate data. Uh, Daniel Leary's, on the other hand, is he's got this tactical mind. He's also a wonderful... Um, 
sequence in the book where he he really knows how to fly spaceships. He takes it low to the ground and and uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> does what few yeah, captains he, can he, do. Yeah, he, he's he's yeah. practiced. He's got good reflexes. He knows his hardware, and these are things that most people don't teach themselves to do. Not that they couldn't, and maybe indeed they couldn't, but mostly they don't try. And uh, he's found it useful to be able to use spaceships in ground attack. This is the perennial problem of the successful series hero, is that they get promoted out of positions where they can do interesting, fun things in the field. Right. Uh, <laughs> it... Um, that, that is a problem, and it's one I've avoided. The, I think Daniel would, I think he could be a, a good admiral, but he'd hate it. Yeah. And, you know, um, but with the universe at peace, in the larger sense, uh, he's not going to be promoted. And I don't have to worry about fleet actions, although I, I will say um, there, is, there isn't a lot of space fighting in Sea Without a Shore. Um, there probably will be in the next book. It doesn't have to be, but I do like to change things up. Um, you know, it. Uh, I, he he's a dashing young captain, and uh, that works very well. I mean, he's highly respected. Uh, he's respected by his peers and uh, indeed his superiors, and they aren't threatened by him if he isn't going to be promoted again. He's not ambitious in that way. So are they in the next book? Are we are they going to muster back into the RCN? I assume they'll, they'll perhaps get a mission, or are they going to perpetually be on half? I have a notion of what is going to happen in the next book, and I'm not going to tell you. Uh, and indeed, it might change. It won't, but but it might. And um, I will promise that there will be plenty of action, plenty of political skullduggery, and just really a whole lot of fun. I, I suspect there will be more bits of little zoology. I, you know, one of the, the, the things I was most happy about in the series was a little scene I did where Daniel is basically in prison, and there's a small insect-like creature, and it waves its feelers to communicate with its fellow insect-like creatures. And Daniel has learned by waving his fingers to communicate with it on its level. I, I don't mean they're talking about Plato. Uh, this is still an insect. Uh, still <laughs> an in it, it can relate to him as an individual. And, and that was fun. That's, that's really fun. Or, golly, you know, look look at that funny pattern in the wood here. That is a fungus 
which came from this place, and that means that these planks came off this ship, you know, this, this ancient ship, and isn't this wonderful? And everybody else looks at him kind of, huh? Um, but it's fun. It's the sort of thing that, as those who know me realize, I do. And uh, these are characters with with interests, and um, I I have interests, and you know that comes out in my fiction. And darn it, this is fun. It's fun to write. I I hope it's fun to read. <laughs> it absolutely is, and and I think it is good to remind people that science fiction is allowed to be fun. <laughs> and, and you know, this is exactly the sort of space opera that I always loved, and it's what I wanted to write. And the problem being that when I came back, you know, when I got out of the army, came back to the world, um, I kept going some really dark places, and it wasn't because I wanted to. I wanted to write fun adventure stories. You know, intelligent, uh, complex, but not not completely bleak. And um, unfortunately, my head was pretty bleak. And a series like The Reaches, while I think the writing is very good, and there's really a lot of virtue in the Reaches series, but that's terribly, terribly bleak stuff. And I didn't mean it to be. Um, but I was just working some stuff out. And it came out in effective fiction, but it was effective in ways that I had not wished it to be. And I'm not saying I censor myself, because I, I basically don't. But I just had no... I did not want to be that grim. It just worked out that way. So I'm glad to be able to do fun science fiction because that's what I always wanted to do. Well, this uh, this fun science fiction novel is called The Sea Without a Shore, and it is book 10 in the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series featuring Daniel Leary and Adele Mundy. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. And thanks so much for being with us, Dave. A pleasure. And, um, oh, let me mention something. You you referred to me as an Ur-Bane um, author. I, I literally am. I The back sell of the hardcover rights for a novel of mine was, in fact, I believe, the first purchase Jim Bane made when he started Bain Books, left Tor. He had acquired the book from, uh, he had acquired the book at Tor. Uh, then he left for Bain before the book came out. And uh, he acquired it, this is uh, Bird's Prey. Uh, he acquired it as a hardcover for Bain Books. So I, I am the or Bane author. Uh, I am the fountainhead of Baneness. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
funny also. But honestly, I, I did what – the only time I, I referred to using the or mythos of um, the Argonautica uh, when I did um, – Cross, or, um, actually, the voyage, uh, but in, in the um, in which, by the way, the uh, the Argonauts go west, not east, uh, and, and I did that in the introduction. But that was mostly to tell reviewers, "Hey, look, I'm educated. Uh, I, I do not normally refer to myself as an or author." Oh, but I, I did want to point out, since you brought it up, I am the Ur author. So <laughs> I, I, I think we're going to have to get you a T-shirt, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and now here is part five of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic is read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but all has been magically changed. Now a handful of people from all walks of life have been given special magical talents. These people are called actives. They come with different abilities. Some are brutes, able to wield impossible strength, finders who can locate just about anything or anyone given time. There are summoners, healers, torches, weathermen, and heavies, those who can manipulate gravity itself. Some actives use their powers for good. Some use them for murder. And who can confront a power that's been twisted to the wrong side of good and evil? Only another active, of course. In this case, it's Jake Sullivan, former soldier, ex-con, active heavy, and private investigator in a dark world. Now Jake may have met his match in one Delilah Jones. She's wanted for murder, and Jake has been recruited by J. Edgar Hoover's Bureau of Investigation to capture her. The problem is she's a brute who knows how to tear men apart and has proved it in the past. She's also smart and has a history with Jake. And when she can't defeat him with brute strength, her wiles are enough to leave Jake passed out on the ground before her and at her mercy. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part five of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter Two The learned gentlemen from the university have asked me if I relied on Einstein's general theory of relativity or if I used the simpler rules of Newton's law of universal gravitation on the evening in question when I accidentally took Sheriff Johnson's life. Shit, I don't know. I just got angry and squished the fucker, but I've gotten better at running things and I promise not to do it no more. Jake Sullivan, Parole Hearing, Rockville State Penitentiary, 1928. El Nido, California the old Portuguese farmer sighed in frustration, ankle-deep in cow shit, as a panicked Holstein ran past, flinging shit in every direction, with his adopted girl on top trying to ride the animal like a horse. Of the cow, he bellowed, but it didn't matter anyway, because people rode horses instead of cows for a reason, and a thousand pounds of beef slipped and landed on its side in a great grunting heap. 
The girl traveled at the last second to avoid getting hurt. She appeared next to him, still in forward motion, and her rubber boots slid through the muck until she stopped. She was taller than he was now, so he had to stand on his tiptoes. He smacked her hard on the back of the head as he shouted in English, Mean to cows? You don't be mean to cows. Sorry, Faye said sheepishly. I wanted to see what would happen. The farmer just shook his head. He'd tried that himself once a long time ago with similar results, but she didn't need to know that. You upset the cows. Upset cows don't give so much milk. No milk, no eat. Times were hard, and they were paid by the hundred weight. There was a one-thousand-gallon tank in the barn, and if it wasn't full when the milk truck came, then that meant less money from the creamery, and they would be eating cows to stay alive instead of milking them. The cow got up and trotted away, shaking her head and snorting. Its ear tag told him it was number 155, and she was a pain in the ass anyway. In the barn, she was a kicker, so it served her right. His hand still hurt from the evening milking when that cow had kicked him again. Sorry, Grandpa, Faye said again. I was done putting grain out for the night, and she was just looking at me like she was daring me to mess with her. Everybody who worked in the barn had gotten a hoof to the hand by that particular boss cow at some point. 155 was particularly good at pissing on her own tail and then hitting you in the face with it when you were just squatting down to put the milking machine on her. She was an angry cow. 155's a bitch. He thumped her on the back of the head again. Ladies don't cuss. He wanted to smile, but had to stay stern. So you traveled and landed on her back? The girl shrugged. She had really grown the last few years. She didn't really fit in with the rest of the family, being so much taller, paler, skinnier, with hair that was always long, tangled in the color of damp straw. Her Portuguese had gotten better than his English. She got dragged to a proper Catholic mass most Sundays, and she worked hard for a girl. So it was almost like she wasn't a damn oaky anymore. But she would certainly never pass for an Azorian Festa princess. Never told you not to. Told you to be careful, he chided her. He had taught her everything he knew about magic. He'd taught her to travel only to things that were in her line of sight and how to use her instincts to avoid getting hurt by stray objects. He hated to admit it, but she was already better at it than he had ever been. She could go further, had a better feel for it, and could store more power than any other gray eye he'd met, but she was still young and therefore dumb. What if the cow moved and you got your foot stuck in it? I'd have a kid with one leg. You can't milk with one leg. Sure I could. I get a stool with wheels. But who'd want a cow with a foot growing out it? Faye thought about that problem for a second. The circus? He groaned. The girl's head just didn't work in the same direction as most folks. People like us got to be careful. One mistake? He made a gagging noise and crossed his eyes. She giggled. She still giggled a lot. She hadn't really talked much for the first few months. Faye had always been a strange one, reacting to things only she could see, with lots of strange looks and scowls, and when she talked she didn't make much sense, usually the first thing that popped into her head. The farmer never found out much about her life before, and frankly he didn't care to, 
but he knew it must have been lousy even by miserable Oki standards. His wife, Maria, may God rest her soul, had taken to the little Oki girl and doted on her. When Maria had passed on that winter, Faye had watched the family mourn, and he thought that it was probably then that she had figured out she was one of them now. Once Faye decided she finally fit in, she'd been nothing but smiles and mischief ever since. She really brightened the farm up, and though the old farmer missed his wife every single day, the skinny little Oki girl had given him something to live for. Faye was the best ten bucks he'd ever spent. Come on, girl, let's feed the calves, then we can turn in, he said, and the two of them climbed over the corral pipes and dropped down to the hard dirt of the yard. His knees were killing him, but there was always more work to do on a dairy farm. She hopped down with the effortless grace of a young woman instead of a clumsy kid. He hated to admit that she was growing up. Even some of the local Portuguese boys from the other families had started sniffing around, but so far he'd kept them at bay with a stern glance and his reputation. Grandpa, can I tell you something? After the first year, she had started calling him Grandpa instead of Mr. Vieira. He'd never minded. What girl, you gonna fess up to scaring more cows? She didn't giggle for once. That got his attention because she was hardly ever serious. There were always random thoughts spinning in that girl's head, but it was rare when she shared. It's about my magic, something that don't make sense to me. He waited for it. None of it really made sense to him. he just learned to control it by instinct. Most of the others like them weren't so lucky. You taught me to feel ahead before I travel. And you always do, right? Of course, she said defensively. But lately, it's been more than feeling. If I try real hard, it's like, I don't know, like I can see the space before I get there. I don't know. I don't have the words to explain it good. It only happens if I try real hard. The old farmer nodded thoughtfully. According to everything he had learned over decades of practice, that was impossible. You didn't see until your eyes actually got there. A traveler could get a sense of wrongness if he was about to jump into a bad place, and that could save your life, but you couldn't actually see anything until you arrived. I don't know how magic works, just that it does. I teach you what I know don't mean you can't learn more than me. Faye seemed perplexed by that. Why is it that some of us can do some kinds of magic, but only some of us, and we can only do one kind? If we got one magic, why can't we get more? He knew that she was wrong. There was at least one person out there with more than one power, but she was too young to have to know about him. That's how God wants it, I guess. What if magic was something that could be learned and we're just not born with? What if regular people could learn it, like from books or school or something? This train of thought made him uncomfortable. Faye assumed what most people did, that there was only one kind of magic, but he knew that there was the other kind. The old kind. The bad kind. He grunted. Let's talk more work. Come on, calves are hungry. Faye sighed. They're always hungry. Springfield, Illinois. Sullivan, are you okay? He blinked against the brilliant light. His head was throbbing. 
pulsing like somebody was running a blacksmith's forge inside his brain. Oh, that fade cooled me good, he muttered, pulling himself up. Cowley was kneeling at his side, blood leaking from his nose. Sullivan wasn't the only one the fade had worked over. The spiker mashed one big hand against the side of his head, and it came away stained red. He'd really gotten belted. Sullivan knew that he should have been out for a lot longer, but he'd spent a lot of time using his powers to toughen his body. It wasn't like there was much else to do inside an 8 by 10 windowless cell all day. Which way did they go? He picked his fedora up and tugged it down tight on his head. Cowley pointed up. The blimp. Sullivan got to his feet. How's Purvis? I'll live, the senior agent grumbled from off to the side, his left arm hanging at a very unnatural angle. Everybody's alive, but they're hurt bad. I don't know where the locals are. They should have come running when they heard shooting. They've got a gang of actives, Sullivan. There are more of them that went up there. A mover bounced the boys I left on the door. There was another girl. Who knows what she does? Sullivan stood. His head hurt, but everything seemed to be attached. No bones were sticking out, and he wasn't squirting blood, so he'd been worse. He checked his power. It had automatically returned, and he could feel the weight in his chest. He had about half of what he'd started the night with. There was a sudden clank as the docking clamps were retracted from the dirigible. Take care of your man, Melvin. I'm going after them. There are at least three actives, Purvis warned. That's suicide, Cowley said, grimacing as he picked up his Tommy gun. I'm coming with you. That kind of bravery would probably get the agent killed someday, but Sullivan could respect it. Fine, let's go. His forty-five was on the ground, and he returned it to the leather holster on his belt. The car won't come down from the top. They probably wrecked the controls. Cowley said, and the door to the next stairwell landing is still and has been sort of twisted. It's stuck. I already tried. Wait, Jake, what are you doing? Sullivan stepped into the elevator shaft. There was no ladder, and the interior of the shaft was made up of a grating that would be extremely difficult to climb. The spiker paused long enough to pull a pair of leather gloves from his coat and put them on before grabbing the swaying cable in the center. It was extremely greasy, and he looked with distaste at the mess it was making to his best shirt. Money was tight. Don't try to keep up. He reached inside and used some power. It always took less energy to affect his own body than others. Perhaps it was just a question of range, but either way it didn't take much power to make gravity shrink away to nothingness around his person. Sullivan reached high and pulled, launching himself up the cable hand over hand, almost flying up the whipping strand. Within seconds he had left the first floor behind. Wow, and I get a lighter, Cowley muttered from below. Why am I doing this? Sullivan wondered, but he already knew his answer. He had a few certain principles, and one of those was that when he started something, he finished it. The bottom of the elevator car was black with grime and collected petroleum sludge. Sullivan almost collided into the soft mass, so great was the speed of his ascent. 
He held onto the cable with one hand and dangled, looking for the trap door. He found it, but had magically deprived himself of the weight to push it open. He concentrated on the trap's iron hinges. It took a great deal of effort to channel his power in two separate directions at once, to make himself lighter, but to make the door heavier than its hinges could bear. Good thing he'd done nothing but practice for six years. Sam, get out of the way, he shouted. He had no idea if the Bureau of Investigation agent was actually crazy enough, or physically fit enough to follow him this way, but it was worth the effort to yell. Ain't coming. The trapdoor, now drawn toward the earth as if it weighed five hundred pounds, tore free and toppled down the shaft. Sullivan reached out with his power, just in case, and lessened the pull on the trapdoor so it fluttered down with the energy of a broken kite. The length of the reach overcame his concentration, and for a brief moment Sullivan slipped. He barely held on to the greasy cable as he returned instantly to his natural weight. Sliding, almost losing it, he managed to shove one hand through the open trap. Grasping the edge, he pulled himself through onto the elevator's carpeted floor with a grunt. The shaft terminated inside a glass enclosure. UBF signs encouraged mothers to secure their children while on the platform. Sullivan crawled forward, glancing around the darkened enclosure. Rain was streaking the glass and lightning crashed. Three UBF employees and the last of the passengers were standing there, gawking at the dirigible beginning to rise just outside the windows. Delilah was getting away. Hey, he shouted. Can you clamp it down from here? Are you crazy? You want them to stay? An older man in a blue UBF captain's uniform shouted. That's my bird they're glomming out there. And even I don't want to mess with those freaks. He bent the door with his brain, son. Sullivan swore as he tried the door to the platform. The metal frame had been twisted and distorted somehow. It was like what Cowley had said had happened in the stairs. He didn't even know what kind of power that was, and if it was the mover, then it was from an active far stronger than anybody he'd met before. That gave him an idea. The dirigible companies were employing lightning directors now, and their safety records had gone way up as a result, but he'd also seen what an offensive weapon they could be during the war. Who's the crackle? Sullivan asked. Come on. One of the younger UBF employees stepped forward. Sullivan kicked himself. It should have been obvious. His coverall had a big yellow lightning bolt sewn on it. We prefer being called Edison's, the young man said stiffly. Whatever floats your boat, pal, can you blast them out of the sky? It doesn't work like that, he said quickly. The others looked at him suspiciously. Even if he could, he wasn't going to admit it in front of people who could get him fired. Of course I can't. Well, it was worth a try. The dirigible was rising, loose cables whipping about it in the wind. Cover your ears, Sullivan ordered as he drew his 1911 Colt. There was no way he could heed his own advice, and his ears stung from the concussion in the enclosed space. A hole puckered through the thick glass. He stepped back and kicked the window out, careful not to slice himself open on the jagged edges, and stepped onto the platform. 
The rain was pounding around him in giant sheets. The dirigible's cabin was thirty feet up and rising quick. He could have shot at it, but he might as well try to poke holes in the moon. He could empty an entire magazine into that gas bag, and they'd still have enough helium to make it to California. A few forty-five caliber holes weren't going to make a lick of difference. They were far enough away from the tower now to safely fire up the propellers, which coughed and began to turn. The stubby wedge wings started getting lift, and the rate of climb increased dramatically. There was no time for hesitation. Sullivan took three quick steps and vaulted over the railing into space, drawing deep on his power the whole time. The safety cable snapped past, slamming into his chest, flinging him about as if he weighed nothing, which, in fact, was almost true. He wrapped his arms around the cable and his fedora disappeared into the darkness. Sullivan grimaced as the sharp corner of the platform's metal roof caught his leg and slashed through his trousers and into the muscle of his calf. It hurt unbelievably bad. He didn't know how deep it was. He could let go and float to the ground now, or he could wait, pass out from blood loss and drop like a stone, but Sullivan ignored the pain, despite every rational part of his brain telling him that he was cuckoo, and began to climb throwing himself up the cable with maniacal force. The wind was increasing as the dirigible picked up speed and the incandescent lights of Springfield were winking by under his kicking legs. Thrashing through the rain, he could see that the cable terminated on a spool at the aft end of the cabin. There was a catwalk under it, and Sullivan concentrated on reaching it. He blinked away rain and tears long enough to notice the form of a man walking down the catwalk right toward the spool. Sullivan knew he was a sitting duck. There was no more time. Altering gravity took power. The further he reached, the more it took, and changing the direction of pull entirely burned up power like coal in a blast furnace, but he had no choice. Sullivan spiked as hard as he could as he let go of the rope and returned to his normal weight. There was a rip in space as one bit of it was temporarily wronged and inverted. Up became down, and he fell through the sky upward toward the climbing dirigible. It was the fade moving down the catwalk, reeling the cables back in to avoid lightning strikes. He paused noticing that something was wrong as the raindrops in front of his face slowed, hesitated in midair, and then began climbing. The German turned just in time to catch Sullivan's massive fist with his jaw. Lights out, Hans. That was part five of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Tony Weisskopf, Christopher Schifani, Stephen Long, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a brace of explosive kudos and praise distributed via rocketry and high-altitude balloons across the upper atmosphere of a somewhat bleak and worrisome planet to David Drake, author of RCN military science fiction novel, The Sea Without a Shore. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 